Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Josh, and you're listening to the movies that made me. We've got another double episode this week. Um, there's a terrific quarantine-themed horror film, Sea Fever, uh, out right now in, um, I'd like to say, theaters everywhere and streaming services everywhere. And this week we've got uh, a double with the star of the film, the great Connie Nielsen, and the director, Nyesa Hardiman, uh, coming right up after her. So here it is. This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Nice to meet you guys. Lovely to meet you. Thank you for doing this. We were very happy to uh, get to see your movie ahead of most people. Oh, yes. thank you. Did you have a good time with it? Yeah, very much. Um, and it's 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 remarkably pertinent. I'm sure that you never imagined that when you were doing it, <laughs> nor that you would open during a pandemic and not be able to be on theater screens. All those other lovely things. But it is it is a movie for our time. Yeah. <laughs> it has really just been so incredible to feel people's reactions to the film because they really like have this personal experience all of a sudden with the quarantine idea, you know, yeah. so that's, that's been really cool and horrible at the same time. Yeah. We, we found a lot doing this show lately that uh, there are two, two camps of people there are people who are doing everything they can not to think about what's happening out in the world and watching movies that have nothing to do with it. And then there's people who are just immersing themselves in, you know, quarantine and pandemic movies. So you're definitely going to get them. <laughs> I had both experiences, actually. I feel like in the beginning, I was glued to uh, the news. I saw like NBC, CNN, CNBC. I saw like uh, BBC. I, I, I was just so obsessed with information. Also because I felt like we weren't really getting any information about what was going to help us what was mm -hmm. going to be, right. you know what was this really about and um and then the the last week or or two weeks or so i feel like i've done the opposite i've been turning inwards just into the house and into the family into the kids well that was a good two weeks to do that because the last yeah. two weeks have been all about trump Nothing about us at all. It's anyone funny, except I him. That, that was why I turned off because I felt like every time I was watching those, uh, those, 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 whatever they're called, like briefings, um, I could not believe that everything was about patting him on the shoulder if it wasn't him. And if it was him, he was patting himself on the shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, people are dying and you're patting yourself on the shoulder. How is this about your ego? That was so crazy for me. 
And also when you watch the bobbleheads behind him nodding as he says this nonsense yes. and then, you know, and then coming out and, and no matter what they try to say, they always try to say as, as, as the president decreed or as, you know, it's, they yeah. got to flatter him in every other sentence. Or I else mean, get it's in no wonder that he's starting to talk as if he were a king because he is literally being treated like one there. Yeah. And so yeah. he probably erroneously starts getting that, impression himself you know if yeah. he didn't already well, i think he had that impression a long time yeah, no, yeah. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> more that. where where are you coming to us from i am in the bay area i'm sitting in my youngest oh. son's bedroom he got the the bedroom with the direct uh access to the ethernet so that uh, he could do his gaming with the fastest speed, whatever. So it's also where i have been doing all of my press uh because i can actually you know have uh, uninterrupted streaming here right well, it's a good it's a good connection it yeah, is a good connection. yeah better, better than many we've had whoops yeah um but uh, anyway well thank you uh for for coming on um and by the way the name of the movie is sea fever which you know, sometimes people yes forget. yes yes <laughs> which, which we've just seen and enjoyed very much um uh tell you what i'll say this if you want me to pull it i'll cut it um <laughs> Because if you're one of those people who's getting through the pandemic by diving into movies about uh, infectious diseases and horror, that's what this movie is so for you. It's ridiculous. If you're one of those people who's trying to avoid that sort of thing at all costs right now, <laughs> save it for after. It's a great, just really, really fun film. If you're but, feeling super paranoid right now, this movie is not for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's terrific fun, and I'm I'm embarrassed. I didn't realize until I was watching it that one of your producers is a friend of mine, Brendan McCarthy. Oh, is that right? Oh, cool. Yes, yeah, who I uh, absolutely love. Um, but yeah, so our our guest is is Connie Nielsen, and I'm also Connie. I'm I'm sure I knew this somewhere down the line, but like so many of your country people, I don't know what it is about Denmark. None of you have accents when you're in movies, so I I guess I had forgotten if I ever knew that you're Danish. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate um, that so much. Also, because when we are not in movies, we have like these, um, we speak like me, which. Uh, <laughs> well, it's very close to American. It's yeah. very. Um, it's sort of a um, nothing accent. Like it's neither, it's no here. It's neither here nor there. It it, it somehow can be, it, 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 tra it transmogrifies into an American one pretty, pretty easily. Right, but right, right. I'm watching the film last night and I'm going, Oh, I, did I know she was Irish? I guess I did. I knew she wasn't. <laughs> Thank um, you. That's a, but, that's but, a compliment. Uh, we actually um, were working very hard to keep a Danish accent in the Irish. So it was like I was working really hard to get like the right Irish accent. And then Niasa, my director, would like come in and she'd say, a little bit of Danish, a little of Danish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, it's it's very effective. Um, but anyway, our, our guest is Connie Nielsen, who's been in so many terrific films over the years. Um, uh, I'm I'm going to call it a weird one that probably people don't a lot, but I I absolutely love Soldier. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I'm so happy you said that. I did too, and it was one of those first films where I felt like I got to do a film where I really believed in the script. You know, that was one of those first things, and I you know I felt like. This was a, a writer who really was always trying to bring in bigger ideas, you know? Well, and, yeah, it's, yeah, it's David Webb Peebles yes. who wrote Unforgiven and Blade That's Runner, right. among many others. Yes, and, exactly. Um, 
And I was I, I was crazy about Unforgiven, so which is why I was desperate. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think I think a lot of people, it's one of those things where people get confused that because the film has minimal dialogue and kind of very streamed, stripped down plotting. Yeah. Um, there's a sense that there's not a lot going on. And there's and so much going on. Some really cool questions, right? It was asking yeah. a question of, of you know, are you, are you real? Is that humanity? Is that taught? Or mm -hmm. is that can it be beaten out of you? And obviously, the wonderful, uh, wonderfully positive message of the film was that even Kurt Russell, brutalized as he had been throughout his entire existence, still had the humanity in him. Yeah. And and one of my favorite Kurt Russell lines of all time when uh, you, you say to him, what are you going to do now? And he says, I'm going to kill them all, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> Love that film. Uh, you're in this thing, Gladiator. I've never heard of that. I'm sure it's good. The um, uh, many, many, many other wonderful Ice Harvest, which which I, I also love. Uh, Lars von Trier, you've worked with. I mean, it's so. And aren't you, aren't you playing Hippolyta in your in one of yes, your? I yes, I am. Yes, I am Hippolyta in the Wonder Woman. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, but anyway, we're we're thrilled to have you. We're uh, thrilled to be plugging your your new film, and uh, more than anything, we're we're excited to hear about some of the films that have kind of inspired you along your uh, your journey through life and through work. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I think it's such a great idea that you guys have that as a subject matter for your podcast. I just love that because oh, it is you. so true. You know, it, I hate when people ask me, what are your 10 favorite movies? Because mm -hmm. first of all, that changes. Uh, of course it does. It depends on the time of day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mine has been the same for 35 years. Exactly. Yeah. But but the, the films that made me, that doesn't change. That I know. Like, I know... Ah what 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 contributed to my worldview and to my move movie view like my view of our work right right um and i as i was thinking about uh, the questions yesterday I, I i i realized that the first movie i remember that really affected me uh, in like a deep way it was uh, this uh, Dreyer film, and it was in black and white, and it was shown, you know, on Sunday afternoon, like at three o'clock. We had one TV channel. I lived in the, you know, at the end of the street in bumfuck nowhere in Denmark, and it's, there was just nothing. And um, so the Sunday movie in the afternoon on that one TV channel was so amazing uh and and i remember the depth of my terror of uh, this 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 black and white film uh about this 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 stern uh interpretation of religion and showing in effect that people who are deeply religious have the same capacity of deep evil as as people who are not and it was one of those first things i grew up in a mormon religion so this idea mm -hmm. that people who were on the right side of being religious could also be mean um <laughs> and in their intent on being right was willing to 
you know, push people away from their own family. Um, then another film from that time, we're, we're talking oh, Sorry, like, what was the title of that one? Oh, Ort, uh, Ort, uh, which means the word. Oh, uh, oh okay. Ordit. Um, uh, or, or, ordit is the way yeah, of ordit, yeah. okay. and, um And another one was called Dide Menskeban, which means Dide, Child of Humans, which was a film uh, um, by Henning Jensen, who made this gorgeous film about a child, a, a young girl who goes to become the a maid. She's from a, a, a very poor family. She becomes a maid at, um, at, at, at like a big house. And there she gets seduced by, you know, whoever is the guy in charge and ends up having a baby out of wedlock and is, you know, deeply shameful uh this the shame of having a child out of wedlock and again this film just brought back the humanity of well but this woman is a human and she, and her child is the child of a human so what does it matter whether you have been uh sec you know uh, sanctified as a, as a as a child by a piece of paper by a um a, a, I don't know, a, a ritual. Like, how is this ritual more important than her mere existence? Mm. And these were so important questions for me at the time that really made me question uh, the, the, the narrow ideas that I was growing up within. Well, really and, how, um, how old were you? Probably, you know, it's hard to tell. Probably somewhere between ten and fourteen. Oh, okay. That's, that's usually the time when people yeah. start wondering <laughs> about the things they've been told and how. And and that's that's why here in America, when I was uh, when I was young, the Twilight Zone was such a popular program because it taught kids to question the fact that the things that are told are not necessarily what's real, and that there's a lot more going on than we think, and yeah. yet we're not old enough to quite grasp that yet. But it also taught me how to be critical of just about mm. any information at that point. Um, another film, and this was an American film that I remember like shattered me when I saw it, uh, which was Francis. Um, and it's Jessica Lange in this gorgeous film about Francis yeah. Farmer and to me, that film, like it broke my heart, first of all. I remember I was weeping when the film ended because she had become like this non-person. She had become like her true spirit had been broken and had her, her, her genius in a way had been robbed from her. And at the same time, I saw the uh, this is an attack on women in general not just on women in hollywood but on women in general and like how her mother her, her woman herself was so intent on Im implementing this uh lecture this uh, this uh, this course in um in um what can I call it? Uh, 
conformity, this conformity that was enforced on this woman. Um, obviously, now, if I look back on it today, I saw it recently again, I thought, maybe she had like bipolar or maybe she just had like some kind of, you know, a personality uh, disorder. You would probably today, uh, you know, either bipolar or, or you would think, you know, borderline, you know, something mm -hmm. that she could have easily managed, but it was also a truth seeker at the time she was seeking to question the boundaries she was being put inside as a product and as a woman. And I, I remember that that film was profound to me. Another, another film of that kind was uh, the Jodie Foster film. Um, um, help me out guys, uh, where she gets raped by- Oh, The Accused. The, the Accused. Yeah. Another film again that did so successfully made me understand what the film was trying to say, which is this girl is not responsible for her rape. By being sexy and by asking to be seen by men, it did not make her responsible for what right. happened. The act of saying no meant that she was being raped. And the fact that she they so successfully showed like the fact that this girl had no value in society that too was like a, a game changer for me did uh, francis uh, send you back to look at any of francis farmer's movies it didn't because in a way i felt like the movies had um probably in a way put her in harm's way as well mm. you know they're very interesting to watch just to see her um for, for she was very good i mean she had she she really stands out in terms of actors of that period as being completely natural and and, and unusual and unique uh and then as the as the career waned and the movies got to be more low budget and more b pictures um you just you start to see a personality change even in her performances oh, it's really quite interesting and this is before the the white cut that she she had yeah and and did that um, just? It's interesting. To, 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 did that film have any impact at all on your your desire, one way or the other, to to be an actor? I come from such a rebellious background, and um, like the women in my family have just been very rebellious in very you know mm, willful i would say uh you know just uh willful mormons <laughs> you know was my mom was sort of like the outlier she became a mormon and like my grandmother and my great-grandmother were sort of like what are you doing you're like putting yourself <laughs> in prison what what is that about you know they couldn't understand her at all you know but uh but all but they were all like way prior to their time independent women so mm -hmm. i i didn't feel like and, and then I also felt like, you know, at the time I thought when I was 15, I thought that's it, you know, feminism is that's it's, it's, it's changed the world. We are now equal and uh, that's it. It's all done. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine now. <laughs> that's, that's what everybody thought when Obama got elected. Was like, <laughs> now we don't have any of those problems anymore. And Our work is not, done here. Not the way it is. <laughs> 
Um, but in terms of cinema itself, like the, not just the stories and the, the way that those films um, sort of affected uh, change in, in, in people, I think, um, in terms of, of, of the actual craft and the way of seeing what movies can be, I would say that The Deer Hunter and um, Mon Oncle d'Amérique, my American uncle by Alain René, those mm -hmm. are sort of the two films that, and, and Eight and a Half by Fellini, like the, those are sort of the films that made me think about the way in which the image works, like in which film is structured and constructed and how it interacts with our experience of it. You know, am I experiencing this as if I'm present the way I am feeling when I'm watching The Deer Hunter, I feel like I am right there in the middle of their world. Right. Or am I having this intellectual awakening, this this idea, this space almost like in it's, you, you become deeply intellectually positioned as you're watching Mon Oncle d'Amérique. And, and you kind of like go like, is he tripping this guy? Or what is, <laughs> what is, you think, this is extraordinary. Um, and then you have eight and a half where it's like, it's, it's so deep, the, the meditation, the meditative state of the entire film that it almost lulls you into a meditation yourself as you're watching it, you know, and then obviously the photography is beyond mm. and like the dreaminess, the dreamlike quality of those images like you feel as if you were yourself dreaming it as you're watching joe you like that movie i, I love it <laughs> I, I, it's, it's i've seen that picture since i guess the first time i saw it i was probably an early teenager and of course i i was fascinated by it but there was a lot of it i didn't understand and then as i got older and i would see the picture again i knew more about life and so it was a different movie mm -hmm. and then i got into the film business and now I'm looking at it from a completely different perspective because now I'm a film director and now I'm watching a story about a film director. And honestly, as you, there are just certain movies like Eight and a Half and, and uh, uh, some of Kurosawa's movies like Akiru that if, if they're, they age with you, you know, they, some movies you go back to and you just sort of say, well, this is what I was like then and I like that sort of thing now, but that's not really who right. I am anymore. Um, whereas with certain movies, they, they do grow with you and, and you reinterpret them, um, as you age. Mm. It's, it's the mark of great art, I think. Yeah. I suppose I, I just was always interested and, and seduced by films that had the promise of changing, changing the world, uh, making it smarter. Mm -hmm. that you know those those are the films that that have always been um interested in and the 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 question all these conceived notions these received uh, prejudices and um like ideas about what you know that's like you know, cut in stone reality and then all of a sudden you go like no no, it's it's not. It's just a prejudice. It's just a a mindset that has to be exploded. And 
and a new paradigm has to be erected. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's always the thing at the core of it to me. It's what I think brings us all into it. And it's the hope we have and talk about deer hunter where so much of that movie is just immersing you in the very specific lives of those guys in that very specific place. And it can't help, but, but breed empathy yeah. in the moment. And the hope is that you can take that empathy out into the world and have just that much more understanding of other people and, and what it's like to walk in their shoes. Um, I'm actually, did you see that, uh, uh, was deer hunter a TV experience for you or was it something you saw? In yeah. Theaters? No, I never saw it on this, on the big screen. Yep. And, and so it would be just something you sort of fell into and then just found yourself getting absorbed by. Yes, that, absolutely. That, yeah. It was one of those, I think it was one, like, first time I got like a VHS, uh, you know, it was like one of those films that you bought and that you had and you would watch and rewatch. And then when you yeah. change from VHS to, to, to DVDs or CDs, then, you, you know, you, that was part of the new library always. Like you always made, that one you always had in the library. Yeah. And there's such amazing performances in that film too. It's it's oh, insane. Unbelievable. It's, and what and I was always so curious about Chimino, like, you know, what 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 happened to him, you know, what, what why didn't he just like continue making one after the other after the other uh of these 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 types of films? Well, he had this hiccup in his career called Heaven's Gate. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did, uh, but I mean, but how does just like, but I mean, it was not a bad movie. No, but it, it wasn't so much the movie, which was quite long and um, not wasn't what people expected and didn't do very well at the box office, but the the hubris that he exposed in making the movie uh, and yeah. keeping people waiting for a couple of days while he had somebody fly off and look for the correct. Uh, Prop, you know, from the right dynasty. Um, apparently, just uh, he pissed a lot of people off, and and that's not uncommon. I mean, there are a lot of directors that you could point to who had real career peaks, and then they sort of became quite full of themselves, and no one could stand working with them anymore. Yeah. Well, he also there was. I think I've talked about this show before. One of the most amazing Q and As I've ever seen with a with a filmmaker. Um, he came to the American Cinema Tech years ago to introduce uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which was the first. His first film and is easily one of Clint Eastwood's best movies, incredible performances. And he talked about how um, they shot his first draft. He found out after the fact that Clint had almost daily fought with the studio to protect the script. Clint to this day thinks it's one of his best movies. And after the experience, Clint Eastwood came to him and said, that was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. I will happily produce anything you want to make. I can be in it. I don't have to be in it. Whatever it is you want to make, I want to be involved in. And Chimino told that story and he said, but I wanted my creative freedom, so I passed. And I can't think of a single movie ever made that doesn't fall within the rubric of Clint Eastwood is in it or Clint Eastwood is not in it. I mean, he literally <laughs> <laughs> he described every movie ever made and every movie that ever could be made. And, and that was too constraining for him somehow. And um I don't know what it means, but it felt like I got some insight into what at least some of his problems may have been. Yeah, yeah. Interesting character, um, and, and he made some. I mean, even even his films. He told me was on the skids. He made some good pictures. Yeah, I mean, and there's moments in ones that don't work that uh, that are still fascinating. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know.
know. Well, it is it is an industry that attracts um, interesting characters. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that uh, of the last movies that I that that you know really kind of like made made that kind of thing was once I got to I, I went to Paris when I was eighteen and I did my first movie there and I remember the first time I could just walk to a movie theater and I went to uh, Champs-Élysées and it was like full of, then I met another problem, which was that in France, like all of the films were dubbed, but the one place where they weren't dubbed were on the Champs-Élysées and on the Champs-Élysées, you could basically, there were like three uh, or four uh, different movie theaters where you could just crisscross across and I could time mm. it so that I couldn't watch it. <laughs> three or four movies a day by like just uh, just going across the street and uh, and figuring out like you know when one was finishing and, and then going there and I and and I remember just going in and for the first time seeing a movie by like I had just arrived and there was this director from Denmark that I had never heard of in in Denmark uh Lars von Trier and mm. and I and I so I went in to see it and it was Euro, uh, Europa and and I I could not believe how cool this film was it was just yeah. like unbelievable I mean I was I I remember I was watching that I was watching uh, Diva I was watching uh, um, um, uh, uh, Konchalovsky's uh, The Sacrifice uh, mm-hmm. and all of those movie theaters just like crisscrossing back and forth and seeing all of these different amazing films um, mm. and just uh, just absolutely fell in love with this this idea of sitting in the movie theater and you know, even during the daytime it felt like such a guilty pleasure to to go there and like soon as they opened it, like i think it was like 2 p.m or something like that and right. and then just start my my back and and forth there oh so you're 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 hardcore oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> um god yeah i haven't i haven't thought about trier Ventura's early work in a while because he had such a it's so funny the shift he made from that kind of splendiferous overly cinematic yeah. luscious style to the kind of more to the completely kind of stripped aesthetic. down uh yeah, but you know that that stripped down thing was was I think just one convention. It was like in a, a way for him to uh, question the, the conventions of, of, of right. movies. So like, why do we have to be able to find all this money when we're trying to come up with you know a way to explore this idea? And and it's cheap, you know, if it's cheap to explore this idea and we can still make great movies, then, you know, we should do it. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, give us give us some others. Throw some more at us. Um, so, I mean, now, but we were sort of like in the, I, in the, those, in those days, you know, uh, mm-hmm. well, I think that in terms of American film, uh, is, is that, uh, started coming in. I mean, I you know it may sound really stupid, but like a film like Saturday Night Fever was mm. for oh, me sure. uh, an amazing film. Like I, first of all, like the the this this dichotomy of of 
this supremely desirable uh, person when he was dancing being counterpoised with this ridiculous mama's boy uh, with the pompadour uh, in this Italian American family out in what I think it was like Queens uh, somewhere yeah. and uh, that's right. Doesn't he eat with a bib? So yeah, that, uh... no, no. And it, I, I, that, that just drew me in. I remember, and and just, just, just still, I saw it not long ago again, and it just really aged well. You know? Yeah. Um, and now that with my kids, I, I get to see a lot of you know old films as well. And one, one film like talking about uh, quarantine. You know, my kids and my oldest one had just arrived from Los Angeles where they had been in um, uh, quarantine and continued their quarantine up here. And so we uh, we went to we were we were sitting in the kitchen. We were all tired. And it was like uh, when I think the weight of of the times were on our, you know, on our shoulders. And I just said. You know, guys. You know what? Instead of having dinner, can we like just bring the dinner to the into the the media room, and just put on like a great comedy? And they're like, "Yeah, but which one?" And I was like, <laughs> and in, immediately in my head came like the party, Peter Sellers. <laughs> and, and I was like, "Look, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Who knows? It might be really stupid." Right, but, but we can just watch five minutes and see how how it feels. I don't know how it's aged. Let's just check it out. Well, within three minutes, the all three of us were laughing so much that like tears were coming out to us. And two hours later, we were still laughing. Like, wow. oh, I wanted to. Uh, do you guys know if that guy Franken who plays the drunk waiter is that Al Franken's dad? No, no, no. Okay. Steve, Steve Franken was uh, a, a, a not not very famous, but very easy to spot uh, yes, actor who was in eyes, a lot of comedies. The eyes were so incredible. My son immediately looked him up. Who is this guy? He's amazing. He's in he's in a lot of movies. He plays dramatic roles too. I think he gets killed in the original Westworld. <laughs> um, oh, that guy! But he's uh, he was uh, he was he, he that's a high point for him. That picture. <laughs> I have to say, we and you know, I felt so good after that film. It was like I felt like I had been relieved. Like you know, like the Greek idea of tragedy was that you would have catharsis. Right. And I always <laughs> brought that with me from theater into film. Right. That the idea is that you leave the movie theater and you've had catharsis. You've wept. <laughs> for the hero and in taking leave of yourself, you have uh, in, in shedding tears with someone else, you have relieved yourself of the burden of yourself, right? Of, and and <laughs> I felt like that after the party, you know, I sure. felt like, ah, like this lightness, you know, after this film, it is such a good film. The only thing that was like a little disconcerting is just how much makeup that Peter Sellers is wearing in this film. And yeah. you really see it very, very, very well. Hard. It would be, it would be a little difficult for Peter to play that kind of part these days, even if he were still with us. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Just, it's just not done. 
Oh, I I actually always assumed that he had like uh, Indian background. Uh, no, he specialized <laughs> in doing Indian accents. He played uh, Indian doctors in a number of movies. Yeah, uh, that's why I, I just always assumed he was from some Indian background. No, like, but but the idea of, uh, of of people who aren't the ethnicity of the people they're playing, while I find it a little limiting to to say that they can't do that, uh, is currently uh, not. Uh, not enjoyed by the majority of No, I mean, it, the fact is that it was used for so many years to exclude entire population groups. Uh, you know, yeah. Noel Brenner, anyone, <laughs> you know? It's just, there's just so much, um, there's just so much that's wrong with it. And I remember even watching like the 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 cowboy movies when I was oh. a kid, right? How how many Indians being played by yeah. Jewish guys yeah. from Brooklyn? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I just felt well, there like, were only like three or four Indian actors, so that was it was yeah. difficult. Yeah. Jason Overheels couldn't play all the parts. Well, well, they could have found more. I think you know. Well, they found people like Charles Bronson who kind of looked like they were Indians occasionally. You know, they used to say that you can't have female leads because they just aren't good enough or they just can't carry a film. Uh, These, I just don't believe. Or, or we'd have men play them back in Shakespeare's yeah, time. That's exactly. right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I just don't, it, I just don't believe in it. I think that it's, I understand that, that uh, you know, art is a place where we need to find freedom, but we also need to be so free that we are free of the prejudices. And unfortunately, we're not free of our prejudices. And therefore, looking for freedom while you're operating inside of a prejudiced mindset uh, is in fact imposing a lack of freedom on another group of people. So yeah. I just I just find that that this idea of social um, or what would you call it uh, cultural appropriation uh, while annoying because there's a lot of gorgeous things I'd like to wear but I can't because uh, <laughs> culturally ap appropriate you know inappropriate um, and I do understand that you know as a white race we have continuously appropriated other people's yeah. things we just have and 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 I also think like the UK should just give back those freaking marbles uh, to Greece as well. And uh, <laughs> you want to go all the way back no, and start fixing it. Yes, yes, I do. Let's get reparations done as well. So. Give them the Elgin marbles. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I tend to think that the you know the project we're on now eventually we we get to the point where once again. Uh, you know, anybody can play anything and that's, that's the goal, but we're not, we're not there. Yeah. Yet. But it's a process, right? And, and yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but it is always fun. We just watched the searchers again recently. And somehow in my mind, I'm always convinced that the guy who played scar was actually a native American. And of course he, he's, he's not even remotely. In this, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, things are, things are slowly getting better. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> how, how, I think we talked about the party a little while ago, um, I guess, but, but I, it's been so long since I've seen it. Is the fact that he's Indian, is that ever essential to the plot or is it just? 
it's only it's not essential to the plot. It, it's uh, it's only essential to his characterization because he's got this character that he does, right? And he's got these uh, catchphrases like "birdie num num" and and, and stuff that are uh, that that go, go with the characterization, right? Also, it starts, doesn't it, in, in uh, on a movie well, set? The film, the film he initially is hired to play in is about the British Empire, <laughs> right? And so he's hired because he's Indian. And then, right. of course, he, he blows so, it up. <laughs> so that's that, and you know, that honestly, that the timing of all of these uh, comedic moments are so good, so yeah. good. And then yeah, there is yeah. like the tormentone, like the Italian word that means, like, it becomes funny through repetition, right? You say it yeah. over and over and over again, and it's so funny. I think that uh, definitely, uh, you know, now it's. It's it's Ridley. I mean, not so. I mean, Alien, of course, amazing. But for me, when he did, um, um, guys, blanking because I've got a dog at my feet and kids coming in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Rutger Hauer and um, oh, Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade Runner. Thank you. Yes. To me, same writer as Soldier. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah. that I. I had completely removed from my mind. Yep. Okay, so Blade Runner to me just blew my mind. That film just that just blew my mind. The 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 just the visuals and the yeah. the, the 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 so successful attempt at creating non-human uh, or human-looking droids and. Uh, I think like Han Hannah um, Daryl Hannah's character is like so exquisitely well drawn and uh and I and and, and Rudger is amazing in this oh. film. I mean so amazing. And I, I I read recently that it was Rudger who was improvising in that last moment oh, yeah, on the roof the, yeah. on the roof with the with the with the dove and and it just doesn't didn't surprise me at all that 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 ridley would leave that space uh for his actors because that's my experience with him as well mm, really? the, just this utter generosity this this utter openness and freedom in play sense of play at all times uh, that gets you so excited that you can't wait to bring whatever you've got, you know, with you to the table, you know, yeah. that was that experience that I had too on Gladiator that he wanted to know what you were thinking. He wanted to know what you were bringing in, you know, in fact, I think he was feeding off of it. Boogie Boo, let's can I, just... can I have my room after? Yes, yes, you can. Okay, we, cut, we edit these, so don't worry. I'm not cutting any of that. <laughs> he wants the room back. <laughs> he needs to sign a waiver. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's a glib thought, but um, it's kind of sobering to realize that Blade Runner is now officially a period piece. It's it's set in isn't it set in 2019? It's set in 2019, but the but the world has caught up with it, and it looks like Blade Runner now. It does. It kind of does. It does. Yeah. There are places where it looks exactly. I was thinking that the other day, Joe. That there yeah. are places that totally looks like that. It's, a, like, it's, it's a it's a hypnotic movie. Did Did yeah. you see it first with the 
well, there, there are n- numerous different versions of the movie. Did you see it first with the narration? Or did you see it, the director's version without the narration? No, I first saw it with the narration, and then I saw the director's version as well. That also was in Paris, I believe, uh, where, when the director's uh, version came out. Um, and I remember that there was a lot of debate in the French newspapers about whether the first version was perhaps better than the director's version. You know, there was a lot of 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 of, uh, of thinking back and forth. I never. I never paid attention to it. I, I I can't even remember whether I thought that the you know that it was the legend has it that Harrison Ford didn't want to do the narration and so he supposedly did it badly, thinking they wouldn't use it. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how true that is. I never had the problem with it that some people did. It. I mean, it's just I'm I'm a sucker for that genre. So the. Yeah, the world weary voiceover is um, well. It's a film. It's a film noir tradition, but yeah. uh, but also the ending, you know, which is cobbled together from footage from other movies, right. uh, is is um, it's much better in the director's version. Okay, hmm. that we you know that's too long ago since I since I yeah. There's so many cuts of it out there yeah. now too. It's it's mm-hmm. hard to know what. Uh, uh, well, wonderful. Um, what, are, what are some of your favorite movies? So maybe I should put on my list, uh, my quarantine list. Uh. And then the guest turned it back on the host. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, good Lord. I don't know, Joe, what do you, what do you, oh, you need to recommend during yeah. a, a pandemic? No, no, not a pandemic. Just like, what are you, what are the, the films that really made you and that really formed you uh, in terms of your perception of cinema and the power of cinema? Well, a lot of those are available on our site trailers from hell where josh and i and a bunch of other filmmakers do these commentaries on the trailers for certain movies based on the fact that a lot of people aren't familiar with them you know a lot of people didn't uh get to see them uh constant rotation on television as we did when we were younger and so young people particularly are um a lot of them certainly wouldn't know peter sellers from a hole in the ground you know because they just know there's no reason other than when your mom drags out the, the video yeah. Uh, for you to even, you know, encounter him in any uh, kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of our likes and dislikes are pretty, pretty much there to see on the, on the site. There's just so many. Just the, the other day I got asked to um, introduce an online screening. People are doing sort of movie gatherings online now, which is yeah. interesting development um and i got asked to introduce cool hand luke which is one of my oh, all-time yeah, favorite that. movies and there was something about it i just i just sort of i was flipping through a couple of scenes of it just just because any excuse to take a look at cool hand luke i'll take and and i was so moved by it uh this time i mean i'm always affected by it but it just seemed to be on so many levels is to, that that to, is that that film where there's that car wash scene with the girl that's the one. Oh yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> I have a feeling I'm not going to put that on. Yeah. What's interesting about the car wash scene is that the girl that they're looking at wasn't there that day, and all of oh, the reactions, so all the reactions that the guys do, and all those intercuts and everything were all done without her being there because that was shot later. Wow. It's called acting, Joe. Yeah. yeah. So well, but... Connie can explain it to you at another time. <laughs> <laughs> I've done but a lot I just, of that. It just... <laughs> Everything about that movie just just sort of speaks to me right now in terms of its its sort of its worldview and 
And then just the fact that it's it's right now, there's something about watching people who are outdoors in close proximity in the sun together, you know, chained together, eating together, punching each other. I don't know. It's all very it's all very messy and human. And it's all these things that we're all kind of missing right now. Yeah. Whenever, whenever you turn on a movie that was made before the last, you know, three, three weeks ago, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and people are hugging and kissing and, and interacting and everything. And it just, it just almost now seems like it's on another planet. I know. I just, I, you know, I got an invite to go for a hike of, from a friend who said like, you know, we can easily go on a hike together and still observe social distancing. And, I, and my first reaction was like, no, that, there's something wrong about that. <laughs> I'm afraid for who we're going to be a month from now. You know, I don't know if this is going to like leave us, first of all, completely subject to super bugs. And number two, completely de-socialized. You know, it's like we're going to start seeing the other people as the other. Like, <laughs> probably what happened after the black plague you know but you're like in the the cameron where you know these people are stuck in that house together i wonder if they just always stayed there after that well there's there's yeah. a there's a well movie where nobody can leave which is sort of oh, yeah. where <laughs> except they're not doing social distancing because they right. yes. they didn't know that didn't that's know. an amazing film exterminating angel or exterminating angel sorry not avenging avenging angels <laughs> that's it Marvel movie. A hooker with a better <laughs> of injury. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, well, Connie, thank you so much for uh, coming on and, and taking the time to share those with Introducing us. Introducing your family. Yes. Yes. Nice to meet your family. Yeah, they introduced themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck, with, good luck with the film. Uh, it's streaming. It's streaming, I presume, on the usual places. Uh, streaming so and, and pay-per-view and all, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it really is. If you're one of those folks who's, you know, uh, if if you've gotten tired of watching Contagion for the last month, this will take. Uh, it'll give you. It'll give you the same. The same jazz in a but with science fiction package. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's a so it's a much. wonderful movie, and was... you're great in it. And thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks so much. It. it was really fun talking to you guys. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. But wait, don't go anywhere. Coming up right now, it's our conversation with Sea Fever's writer and director, Nyasa Hardiman. Yeah, when, when, when reality wasn't more insane than idiocracy. Um, great, now I'm depressed. Can we, can, oh, we, stop. Uh, can we talk about something nice and cheerful, like a, um, a, a, movie, a movie about a bunch of people being infected by a murderous disease on a boat in quarantine? <laughs> Certainly hit the nail on the head. Um, yeah. So, what? Uh, uh, why would you want to make such a movie today? Um, no, <laughs> we had, we had to, she wanted to make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, we had Connie Nielsen on earlier. She was she was wonderful. But um, 
there are there are better ways to have your movie uh, tap into current events, I would say, than, <laughs> than what we're dealing with right now. Um, Especially since it, it's such a theatrical looking movie, and it's you know it's yeah. so obviously meant to be seen on a big screen. I mean, it's it's just a shame that the movie had to come out during a pandemic, so people can't see it on a big screen because it's I obviously know, a it's big a screen movie. Shame. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a 5.1 surround sound movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will tell you, I did see it. I've got a, um, a 12 foot by five foot screen and a JVC HD projector and wow. a great sound system. So it's not quite like seeing a theater, but it it was, um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And in fact, oh, <laughs> should we, let's worry about the screeners, Joe. The, the come, we, we, this keeps happening. We get these screeners that are like low res and I'll have my oh. name printed right on the middle. Oh, and yes, I told, I told Josh I would have enjoyed it more if I didn't have to stare at his name for 90 minutes. I, Joe, <laughs> Joe has issues with my name. I don't understand. But I finally, I realized if I didn't. It was spelled differently, be better. Yeah. But I, I didn't really, I realized, I, I finally went, I can't do this. And I looked and it was on iTunes. I was like, ah, so I, I sprang the six bucks. I actually bought a ticket to Excellent. the movie. Excellent. It looked, yeah, it yeah, the grosses are so that's right. And I recommend Absolutely. other people do as well. It's a, it's a terrific film. Thumbs on seats. That's what um, we're looking for. <laughs> we're doing a lot of special episodes where we talk to previous guests about the movies they're watching during quarantine. They've been a lot of fun. We're raising money for a food bank. Um, Hollywood Food Hollywood Food Coalition, H-O-F-O-C-O.org. And um, uh, we found there are, there are two very specific camps. There are people who are embracing movies uh about about pandemics and quarantines and all the rest of it at the end of the world and there's people who are fleeing from them um and so why we are highly recommending your movie for the first group and we're <laughs> telling people in the second group just make a note i'm not going to do that to our audience but come back in to it future. when this is over yes because yes, it's a terrific Good film idea. but but oh, uh, well, yeah. i'm delighted that you enjoyed it <laughs> but not the movie to watch if you're trying to stop thinking about you know Infectious True. diseases and quarantine. True, that is fair. <laughs> um, and you also, I gather, you worked on a show Joe and I are both big fans of, Happy Valley. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, I'm delighted uh, you like Happy Valley. Yeah, it's terrific. Yes. I have to say, the writing is superb, and the, oh, and the quite a fan base here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, also, a little on the dark side, but <laughs> what's a girl to do? You know, your sensibility is your sensibility. <laughs> that, that is correct. And I, guess, and I guess that's a great segue into what we're going to talk about, because um, uh, Niesa is going to talk to us about some of the movies that uh, specifically kind of were on her mind and inspired her while she was making Sea Fever. Did we even say Sea Fever? We should mention the name no, of the movie. I remember last time, last time we didn't say it either. We had to jam it in there. Sea Fever. It's called Sea Fever. It's a psychological thriller with a sci-fi element. It's a tense, propulsive story. That asks ethical questions about taking responsibility. I think I've done that. I think I've done that. The promo. Now. Fantastic, and <laughs> and some great performances, and um, uh, just yeah, really, really terrific film. So uh, check it out uh, before or after well, you listen to this. Episode. Delighted that you enjoyed it. But yes, it it yeah. does deal with a lot of the issues that that we're dealing with now. It's uh, it asks a lot of ethical questions about how do I protect myself and how much do I need to protect my community and my family and the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how much do I need to sacrifice myself in the process of doing that? Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. It does ask some quite deep questions that are all, quite yeah. all questions that should be uh, being asked themselves by more people here. Yes, as they as they frolic in the sun and infect everybody. Well, hopefully there will be sun frolicking uh, soon enough without without any possibility of infection. I intend to frolic hard at my first. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, there will be there will be frolicking. It's it's the sequel to the uh, the previous. Frolic, frolicking and hugging. 
lots of hugging. Uh, <laughs> and exchanges of bodily fluids, even. Uh, yes. Indeed. Yes. Amongst the young folk, perhaps. <laughs> those, those, those young people who still do it. You know, you, you don't realize how much uh, you touch other people until you can't touch any of them. I know, it's really true. Yeah, it's really yeah. true. It's just this part of human nature, right? Like we're, we're a species yeah. that lives in troops. That's what we do. And, yeah. uh, you know, we do. We join hands. We, you know, that's how we don't do well when we're isolated. We don't do well when we're yeah. around. You know, there's lots of information to suggest that lonely people and people who are isolated don't live as long and aren't as healthy. And, you know, we need each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, Joe and I always... In prison, they put you in solitary confinement because it's the worst As thing they can do except, for, except yeah. for executing you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, when Joe and I normally, when we're in the studio, we we hold hands with our guests all the way through. It's, um, like it's a, a little weird. It's a little yeah, weird, like but the uh, the they get used it. to it. They get used to it. Uh, you like the yeah, ritual candle and hold hands, close your right. eyes, see what happens. Exactly. Next. Exactly. So speak to us. Yes. Uh, tell us, tell us uh, what, um, what, uh, what were you thinking of when you made this? What were the movies well, that fed, well. your, fed your beast? Uh, well, I was really, what I really wanted to do with Sea Fever, and you can tell me if I did or not, is make a tense propulsive story that's also, the, the, my favorite kind of cinema is the cinema that's representational and metaphorical, right? It's the cinema that uses the full artillery of that audiovisual medium to communicate ideas as well as emotions. That's kind of the fun sure. of it, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I wanted to do something that would ask difficult questions and, you know, kind of poke at the, the cultural sore spots, but using powerful imagery and authentic performances and complex, proper soundscapes. I remember um, years ago, I went to see Atta McGoyan uh, speak at BAFTA, and he said, there are two kinds of filmmakers. The kind of filmmaker who thinks there are two kinds of filmmakers and no, there are two <laughs> kinds of filmmakers. Yes. The kind of filmmaker like like um, uh, Jean Renoir who uh, who wants their film to look like unmediated reality, to to set the camera as a recording device and have unmediated reality look like it's playing out woo, in front of the camera. And that's, um, you know, this, you could argue that's the cinema of people like Noah Baumbach, right? That, that mm -hmm. you wanted to feel like this is unrehearsed, completely authentic, right. uh, documentarian almost. Um, and then he said, and then there's another kind of filmmaker who wants to make something truthful and authentic using mm -hmm. the language of metaphor. Uh, you know, um, drawing on that kind of uh, middle Europa tradition of, of uh, saying we make this representational and we make this metaphorical. And I was sitting in the audience going, well, I know which that, uh, that, you know, it's the cinema of Fritz Lang. It's that cinema where you're trying to explore something that is authentic and truthful or the cinema that Brecht might have made if he had a chance. That's authentic and truthful and that's speaking to ideas and emotions, but it's, that's doing it through the language of dreams and metaphors to reach something that's poetically true. And that was really what I wanted to try and get to with this, to make something that feels completely grounded and authentic right. with rich characters that uh, that feel truthful, that have backstory, that have conflicts within them. And then to put them into a situation where there is one dreamlike element that infects their reality and that they have to deal with. And then the interesting thing is, how do those characters deal with that situation? And that was the story that I wanted to tell. So um, in terms of filmmakers, as a teenager, I, I saw Neil Jordan's adaptation of Angela Carter's 
the company of wolves and it had a massive mm. impact on me first of all because he was irish and so it was that idea oh my god you can be both irish and a filmmaker which seemed kind of a revolutionary <laughs> idea and also you could be three things irish a filmmaker and not always talking about the troubles so that was pretty exciting <laughs> Um, but also this idea that he was a serious filmmaker. He was a filmmaker of ideas who was using the language of cinema, who was using the language of metaphor. Um, and that was really thrilling and it really stayed with me. Uh, and so that's really where I wanted to go with this film. And then obviously it's also, it's it's influenced in palette and in tone by cinema of Southeast Asia. You know, people like Park Chan-wook and, and Wong Kar-wai in terms of palette and uh, Ang Lee uh, in terms of that fusion of ideas and and uh, and the cinema of spectacle. Um, so that was kind of the, the fundament. And then I wanted to tell a story that was propulsive and that, had, um, that has a, a strong narrative engine that would keep you on the edge of your seat while you're also kind of um, trying to navigate these difficult ethical, moral and, and emotional questions. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, because it, it, it's it's obviously it's it's more visually rooted in reality than um, uh, some of those. I mean, uh, than Company of Wolves, for Company instance. of Wolves, yes. it's, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Red Riding Hood with werewolves. I hope it's completely yeah. rooted in reality, except for this one element, um, which I hope you know uh, uh, fits sits in seamlessly with the rest of the story, so that if the rest of yeah. the story feels true, this dream element also feels true. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, and it it, it does that uh, very nicely. Um, so, what what were some of the? I, Neil Jordan's interesting too because he, uh, you know, when you, when you said that about the troubles, I feel like and I'm sure it's not a mathematical formula, but I sort of feel like every other movie he made for a long time was about the troubles, and then he'd do something that was <laughs> nothing like, you know, then he'd do Company of Wolves, and then he'd do, um, you know, Mona Lisa. Yeah. Which There's something wildly really wonderful different. about that as well, right? That yeah. he has he has the things that drive him, which are you know questions of sexuality and and uh, questions of the power differential uh, between men and women that kind of he obsesses over and that he comes back to again and again and a kind of fetishization of black bodies. But um, there's uh, there's a, there's a very definite thematic through line in his work that you can see from film to film. But he's using a different vocabulary in, in different films. Anyway, I right. didn't actually select any of Neil Jordan's films <laughs> today. And we talked about him anyway. I think he got a good plug from you anyway. Uh, that's two points <laughs> off. But, what I wanted to do was um, I wanted to I wanted to talk about the films. And they're not necessarily, you know, my favorite films or the films that have had the biggest impact on me, but they're films that I thought a lot about while I was making Sea Fever mm. because I was interested in... Uh, films that that exist within a kind of broadly speaking within a genre framework so they're recognizably part of a genre idiom but that then kind of quote and and both reproduce and reframe certain tropes and elements of of that genre vocabulary in order to to reconfigure the kind of um, traditional meanings of those stories and tell a new story or tell a story that's in opposition to the way that those stories uh, normally pan out and I think that's um, it's a really delicate high wire act that I really wanted to try to walk with Sea Fever to tell a story that's, you know, it's it's Beowulf, right? It's it's one of the oldest stories um, that we have culturally. And um, it's humans meet unknowable animal. Unknowable animal turns out to be just as human as we are like that's mm. or or to be equal and uh, and um, uh, yeah, unknowable in the same way that we are. 
and that's essentially the story of Beowulf, and it's the story of a whole lot of, of um, sounds like the story of King Kong. Um, yeah, exactly. So, right, we've told we tell the story again and again because it's mm -hmm. a story about the nature of being human, about the self and the other, and it's also a story about uh, taking responsibility for ourselves and for our community and for the world. The story that you know, the story ultimately is no man is an island; every man is a part of the continent. You know, that idea that um, when we other. Uh, either another person or another community or or another species that mm -hmm. we take something away from ourselves, which is the story of King Kong, right? That the mm -hmm. that King Kong yeah. is more human than the humans around him, um, and so that was that's a really old, uh, archaic, archetypal story that felt very contemporary to me because it's a story that resonates with the kind of politics that we're dealing with at the moment, which is you know this notion that we are all individuals in competition with each other. Um, and uh, the old Thatcherite slogan, there's no such thing as society. Uh, whereas in fact, you know, what the climate crisis, which is what I was thinking of when I was writing it, or what COVID-19 teaches us is, yeah, we're not actually. Every man is a part of the continent and do not send for whom the bell tolls and all that sort of thing. We are, you know, we are a dynamic part of a living community and a living biosphere. And we forget that at our peril. Um, and that's that's sort of the deep uh, uh, feeling behind the story. Um, but what I wanted to do in terms of the films that I wanted to talk to you guys about was look at um, films that that use a kind of um, art house focus on characterization and richness of ideas and combine that with a really muscular genre storytelling that is about the cinema of spectacle and that is using the full arti art artillery of cinema. Um, and so the films that uh, that I was thinking about were um, Denis Villeneuve's Arrival, yeah. um, Jane Campion's film In the Cut, uh, The Brilliant Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon by Ang Lee, and Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty. And they're films that are, that are interesting to look at in, in various lights because they reflect different things and some of them are you know, great. And some of them are interesting to pull apart and go, you know, is there something that we can learn from how this film works or doesn't work? Um, but I think all of them are trying to engage in a really authentic way with a kind of archetypal storytelling that feels familiar and to reframe that archetypal storytelling to tell a new story that feels more uh, character driven and, um, right. and, and rich in terms of ideas. And, uh, and they all kind of have genre elements or some some very overt, but they um, do they do. I think yeah. they're all recognizable genre films, right? Yeah. You could you can I mean, put, in you the put cut, them into there... a very specific genre, uh, and they sustain. Yeah, I was just say in the cut is the most the most kind of traditional genre film I think Jane Campion's done, unless I'm blanking. One hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yet, it's very much a Jane Campion film. Yes. But yeah, do you want to go through them and talk about sort of the specific impact of them on? Yes, on the film, let or? me go through them for you individually. Sure. <laughs> pick pick one. So let's well, let's start with Arrival. I think Arrival is the most recent one, right? Mm -hmm. Um. So, uh, Denis Villeneuve. I don't think he's made a better film. I think it's a, I think it's a, an extraordinary film. And and I, the thing I love about Arrival is I don't know if you've read the short story that is based on the story of your life by Ted Chiang. It's a brilliant short story. But um, I'm not. The story sort of exists on the basis of the tense in which the story is told. And you don't really understand why he's telling the story in that tense until the very end of the story. And then you go, oh, 
So the story is really rooted in and structured through language. And if you read it, you go, well, I don't know how you make that into a film. Um, and I think he did an amazing job. And I think the film, when you when you think about it on paper, it feels like it shouldn't work. There's a load of voiceover. There isn't there isn't a huge amount of, of narrative drive, actually, in spite of the, the sci-fi element. But God, I, I don't know about you guys, but I found it, I think it really holds me. And I think the reason that it really holds me is Denis Vinov is such a master of tone. I think mm-hmm. the tone in that film is just gripping. And yeah, I really yeah. admire the way that Denis Villeneuve produces this sense of the uncanny and maintains this low-level dread all the way through that film. And you're not quite sure what it is that you're afraid of, but you know that there's something creeping and disturbing happening. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it is to do with the uncanny. It's the fact that he keeps you in this zone of the uncanny all the way through the story without ever tipping over into, uh, uh, you know, into kind of traditional uh, chase fight or spectacle or any of that stuff. And um, I think part of that is because of the way that he crafts or the way that he guides the performances of the actors, incredibly withheld uh, and incredibly calm and kind of um, anti-histrionic. And there's something about that that creates a sense of dread. And then I think what he does with the budget that he has he keeps those moments of spectacle to precisely the same moment as the moment of peak emotional height. So that you're having this kind of character-based emotional oh, high moment at the same time as he's delivering this fabulous spectacle. And I think as a piece of directing craftsmanship, that's really outstanding. And then, of course, he has the best score ever from Johan Johansson. Which is it's it's um it's those choral voices and it's um yeah. it's quite atonal, it's quite modernist, uh, and it just it delivers this kind of low level sense of the uncanny, uh, in just the most brilliant way. Yeah, yeah, it's um and and by the way, a great great script by uh, Eric Heiser as well, uh, who's the guy who yes. figured out how yeah, to adapt that. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, who did a superb job with the adaptation. Yeah. And and kept that rootedness in language uh, in the adaptation, which is a really difficult thing to do in cinema. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no, it's it's a fantastic film, uh, Joe. I'm I'm going to do it. Um, you you know you know who that composer is, correct? Oh yeah. You, you know you know his last film. His last film. Uh, yeah, his last film was was Mandy. He passed away, right? Unfortunately. Yeah. Yes. We have a running gag. It's a, a, a you know, every, every episode has to. I love Mandy. Mandy. You know, uh, it you comes know up the, all the um, time. The ship's cook in sea fever is uh, Alwyn Fouere, who uh, has a has a part in Mandy. Oh, does he? Oh, See, all, all, all roads lead there. All roads lead to Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> She's yeah. It's the Kevin Bacon of cinema, <laughs> or a film. Exactly. He is the Kevin exactly. Bacon of cinema, clearly. Um, I was wondering, you were when you were talking about the sort of the underplaying of things and everything. It, it made me think of another movie that's not on your list, but that clearly had some. I would imagine had some sort of impact, um, especially for the opening sequences and the way they're underplayed in both your film and this one. But um, surely, Alien had to have. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, work, working and, class and, mugs on a spaceship. And the thing about Alien is um, the, the the lovely thing about Alien that I really like and that that really Scott is really good at. Uh, is that um, sex and gender have no part in the story. 
which none right. of the other directors or writers who took on that, that um, franchise were ever able to reproduce. They're all yeah. just so crippled by their own sense of um, gender difference that they were never able to reproduce fully formed characters for whom sex is not an issue. And it's right. really notable in that film. Yeah, that's no, true. That's true. It's a good point. Um, because uh, yeah, they make they make that an issue, don't they? They make I mean, her, her, all the rest of the films get away from yeah. her, you bitch. All of the other films are all about femaleness. Can't get away yeah. from the weirdness of a female protagonist. They circle the writers and the directors circle around the fact that well, this is strange. She's a woman, right? Uh, whereas he never does. He never does. He never makes it an issue. And nor does Dana Bannon. It's not an issue in in uh, any of the drafts that that are circulating online. Um, I've yeah, it's it's um. Yeah, there's like one brief line that got cut where uh, Veronica Cartwright, I think it's Sigourney Weaver, um, I don't even know if they shot it, where they talk about, uh, they're talking about Ash, the android, and one of them says, did you sleep slept with him? him? And she goes, nah. Yeah. But even then, like, that's not, it's cut. not really, yeah, it's, it, that's not, not gender-based. Yeah, it's not a line about sexual identity, really. It's just a line about right. who do you shag. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. No, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that because it does seem like, um, especially Cameron, who who for a long time we get praise for his female characters, but his female characters always seem to be defined by either being somebody's mother or somebody's wife, and it was, you know, which is not something you do necessarily to you know your your male action hero. No, quite. So, I I really agree with yeah. you. Yeah, and and it's that risk, isn't it, of uh, of falling into the strong female character trap, where right. you know you make her into a superhero, then she's also not a human. You know, many of his um, female characters could be played by Bruce Willis. <laughs> I'd like Indeed. to see that. Yeah, I'd love to see Bruce Willis do that strip tease scene. And, and not that I don't love Linda Hamilton, obviously, and her, yes. uh, you know, the life that she breathed into that role, which is just tremendous. Uh, you know, yeah. those are, uh, those are yeah. fabulous performances. I got to work with her years ago on a, a small film she did with Treat Williams, and we were on location in New Hampshire, and everywhere you went with her, um, people loved her, but, but the response from women you know, it wasn't just a movie star. It was this this icon. This, this there was this real emotional connection to her. You know, I, I always felt like if Linda That's Hamilton, terrific. Linda Hamilton, could just go through life and have no problems because if anybody messes <laughs> with her, every every woman in the room will take care of the person who's bothering her. That's brilliant. But, That's brilliant. yeah, <laughs> and she's lovely though. So, it's, um, but yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. I, I do like it. yeah, the arrival is, is wonderful. Yeah, and and you know it is true of Arrival as well that uh, that uh, Amy Adams is not defined by her sex and her sex, it you know it is a part of the story obviously in that you know she's a mother and that's an, an integral part of the nature of the story, um but uh, there's a, there's a kind of one-upmanship at the beginning between her and Jeremy Renner which feels quite gendered, you know there's a kind of gender performativity of the fact that he wants to prove that he's better than her, um but it shifts quite quickly, and. Uh, you know, she's a, she's a proper professional who does her job and it's not an issue. Um, and there's something really lovely about that and about the roundedness of that character and about how her uh, incarnation as a mother fits in very smoothly and um, uh, unproblematically with her yeah. representation as a professional. I was going to say I like his Blade Runner movie too. Yes. Have we yeah. never talked about that? No, I don't think we ever I thought, I thought I, I thought I thought I was alone in the world. <laughs> I really liked it. Yeah. Am I, am I gonna am I gonna now blow it by saying I actually like it more than I like Blade Runner? Interesting. 
uh, visually, it's stunning. It's stunning visually and tonally. He is a master of tone. You know, tonally. It's yeah. Yeah. Did I horrify you, Joe? No, 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 not at all. I, I okay. like them both. I mean, I you can't have one without the other. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. And it's got, I mean, I don't, it's got that incredibly conceived and directed uh, sex scene with the holographic prostitute, which is um, just one of the oh, most. Oh, that's why you like it. Yes, that's, that's it. That's the only reason. No, but it's just beautifully conceived. And it's all about the character and it's shot in a way you've never seen this before ever before yeah sure. no visually the 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 dynamism of the of the visuals and the cinematography is it's really outstanding it's really true yeah yeah no i'm i'm very much looking forward to his dune yes indeed. But, apparently, yeah. but apparently david lynch is not i just read an interview with him today and he said he has such zero interest in it that he didn't even want to discuss it but i think yeah but he also said that it was because his heart was more or less broken by the treatment he got on his version of it and so uh he i guess he just doesn't want to revisit it in any way i can't imagine yeah I, i'm completely sympathetic i can imagine he would want to <laughs> even, even all about these it. years later these things are uh, are difficult no you but you remember these things believe me especially when something is meaningful to you and it gets screwed up by other people it's yeah. uh, very hard to get over that yeah yep that is hard well i'm going to move on to uh, in the cut yes uh, which is Jane Campion's film from 2003. And like you say, I think it's probably the most uh, the most genre that Jane Campion has um, engaged or the, the most kind of directly uh, uh, within a certain genre of any of her films. Um, although you could argue that Bright Star is, is a, a biopic um, mm -hmm. and fits in with um, a kind of genre of, you know, the biopics of, of famous men and the biopics of right. the women of famous men. Uh, which is a subgenre unto itself, with many films in it. But um, but in the cut, she's she's really engaging very directly with film noirs, and she it's uh, yeah, it's it's yeah. a film noir film, and it comes in two thousand and three at the end of that kind of neo noir fashionable phase that uh, yeah that nineties sort of thing that um, yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, there was Basic a whole instinct. beta films yeah that that yeah. people have associated with them. Um, the uh, the um, legislation in the U.S. for uh, equal pay that there was equal pay legislation passed sometime in the mm -hmm. early to mid '90s, and immediately afterwards there was this whole spate of uh, of femme fatale neo noir. Oh my God, evil evil slutty women who kill men uh, who are really powerful and so powerful that they're overwhelming and might kill you. <laughs> I never made that connection. That's interesting. That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it, it sort of comes at the end of that wave. So that wave has kind right. of crashed and passed right by the time uh, In the Cut comes out. And I, I think it's an amazing, amazing film. I think it has this extraordinary kind of, it harnesses the genre elements that we're all really familiar with. You know, there's, there's the, um, the leaning into language, which is a really kind of film noir thing, right? Um, there's twinning. There's a whole load of twinning all over this film, um, which is a really noir thing. You know, good twin, bad twin, sexy twin, mm -hmm. uh, asexual twin, um, toxic masculinity twin, sexy twin. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all that going on. Um, right. And at the same time, uh, in the third act of the film, she, uh, she has Meg Ryan, who's the, the protagonist, dress up in this really slinky red Bam fatale frock and six inch high bam fatale heels um, and go off and kill this guy 
um, which is a really odd kind of reconfiguration of a whole load of different tropes kind of mashed together into one thing. And I'm not sure that the third act is totally successful. I know at the time, people who loved noir and neo-noir neo didn't like the third act because mm. they, I think it, I think, tell me if this is right. I think they that the, the kind of consensus was there aren't enough narrative twists. Um, but right. I, at the same time, I think she was trying to do something really experimental and different and challenging. Oh. And, and also, I mean, speaking of reconfiguring, reconfiguring Meg Ryan too, because that was not. I know, right? Like that was yeah. an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to do, and really courageous thing for Meg Ryan to do um, at the at the height of her uh, of her powers um, in terms of being an A list Hollywood actor. Yeah. That that she chose this part where um Well maybe maybe it's who I don't know, Joe, you've worked with her. Is that who she really is? Um <laughs> Well that was in nineteen eighty seven. That was before she was Meg Ryan. <laughs> right. But did did she have these dark tendencies that you thought uh, were trying no, to come was, out? Or? <laughs> sweetness and light, actually. <laughs> It did, I a, love when actors do that. I'm, I'm yeah, still... it's an extraordinarily brave thing for her to do, right? To take a part that's diametrically yeah. opposed to everything she's ever done before. Um, I'm, and I'm where she's put into her... these dull, dumb colors and her hair is dyed darker. And she's, you know, the intention is that she kind of blends into the background. So, you know, I, I can't imagine that, that her agents were going, yes, this is definitely something. <laughs> this is the one. <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty brave. Um, and then it was also very brave of Jane Campion to do that. Um, but what she does in doing that, of course, is um, she throws forward Mark Ruffalo, uh, who's the love interest in the story, and about whom, there's a, you know, it's an erotic thriller. So there's lots of scenes of eroticism. And the scenes of eroticism, because of the way that, that Meg Ryan is styled, become about Mark Ruffalo. And they become right. about his body and the fact that, uh, that he's a really sexy body. Um, and that was an incredibly unusual thing for uh, for a film noir or a neo-noir to do at that sure. time, to turn the camera gaze onto the boy's body and go, Whoa. <laughs> and still, it's not him... it's not done often, that's for sure. Yeah. I know. Well, I mean, it's become more common now. And I think the pressures on young actors now are probably just as bad as they are on. on well, I think it was American system. Gigolo that started that. Uh, there you I go. Mean, or was... uh, who was it? There was an actor who said uh, it was the moment in Thelma and Louise when Brad Pitt took off his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> That everything yeah. changed for every young actor in Hollywood. I, I have I have some female friends who have who have told me the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it's interesting. It, it's it's seeing that, uh, trend. and then it's also um, it was before then, right? It was nineties. Yeah, Wild Things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, so there'd been this whole bunch of films about uh, about about the femme fatale and about the you know whatever kind of femme fatale you're having yourself, uh, and and to place that figure at the center of the story without making it a satire. Um, right. was was a really difficult thing because of course the fan fatale is also paper thin like that figure is really exciting and thrilling and uh, and we all love to see her but she's not she doesn't really have any kind of depth to it so to try to create that and also give her three dimensions was a really tricky high wire act um and i just i, I really admire the chutzpah of of jane campion to to try to push that through and i think lots of that film is superb and um, the cinematography also is just delicious in that film uh, yeah. How so? Where where does it where does it intersect with with Sea Fever in, in your mind? Is it the? Well, I think what I wanted to do with Sea Fever and the the ways that it, that it intersects with Sea Fever, I guess, are, are slightly abstracted. In that, what in the cut is doing or trying to do, I think, is to take what is a recognizable kind of archetypal story 
and reconfigure it and reframe it so that it conveys and, and holds different meanings. Um, so she uses a lot of the tropes and quotes a lot of the tropes of noir, um, but she uh, she kind of dials them up to a different temperature so that they have a slightly different meaning. Um, and that's something that I really wanted to explore and experiment with in Sea Fever. The other thing that, that both those films have and that, that Alien has is that idea of a central figure uh, whose uh, sex is not relevant to the story um, and who is not presented as a, as a creature to be looked at in the context right. of the story. Um, that she's there to do the looking, um, but she's never, she never considers herself in that context and the camera never really considers her in that context. Um, so the, those were the things I think that, that I really wanted to explore in, uh, or take from my understanding of, of In the Cut. And the other thing is um, I did really like In the Cut for trying to do something different in the third act. And that was something that I really wanted to explore in Sea Fever because as you guys know much better and, uh, and more deeply than I, um, the third act of this kind of genre tends to be chase, fight, confrontation, death. Of either the, it's the, it's, the, it's the, the eternal yeah no no matter what you do um it feels like yeah you 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 avoided that sort of nicely and I wanted to try to avoid that and and I know it's I know it's an expected part of the genre and I know that people who go see the film hoping that it's going to be a horror film might be disappointed because it doesn't conform to that genre but I really did not want the third part of the story to be chase fight confrontation die because yeah. a for me as a viewer, I get bored. I feel like the story has essentially stopped now. Uh, well, you know, you're right, because when it's when it's something that's actually about something larger, um, I, I try to do this in this dopey horror film I made, and there's a wonderful movie like Ginger Snaps, which I'm Ginger sure you've Snaps. seen, right? Ginger yeah, Snaps, which is just- First act, brilliant. Second act, terrific. Fantastic, and then third act, running around screaming and falling down, because <laughs> that's, that's what you do. and. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's an interesting point. So it was to try to find, it's David Hare, I think, who said um, every film is essentially three stories, the story of the first act, the story of the second act, and the story of the third act. But for screenwriters, it's really, really hard to come up with three good stories. So most screenwriters <laughs> only really have two, which is a bit mean-spirited. <laughs> oh, oh! But it is really hard, right? It's really hard. And especially in this kind of story, because, you know, the, the the kind of rule of thumb is, of course, you have to increase the jeopardy all the time. And how do you do that unless you go chase, fight, chase, fight, die? Or chase, right. fight, chase, fight, you know, the animal dies. Um, and so it was to try to figure out what is a different third story. If this central protagonist is a different kind of figure, the third story in this film has to reflect. It has to come from that character. It has to be truthful to that character. And she would she would be the opposite of chase, fight, confrontation, kill. That's that's the opposite of what she is and what she wants. So it has to be something else. It has to be a different third story. Um, and that's something that I think Jane Campion really, really explores. And it's something that I really want to explore in the film. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yes, nicely connected. Because <laughs> <struggling to. laughs> um, so that brings us neatly on to uh, Ang Lee and um, yes. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, which is an amazing film. Oh my god! And you know, I I, I think it's a, it's just a perfect piece of work. I think it's an extraordinary achievement. Um, and you know, I think possibly I'm not alone in that. Uh, no, no, there are one or two others who share your fringe dwelling views. <laughs> he is also one of the world's nicest guys. Yes. Really, oh, really, he is just such a wonderful guy. 
Oh God, what a lovely, lovely thing to hear. But you know, it's not surprising, is it? Because there's such emotional tenderness in all of his films. Yes, it's true. Life of Pi is an amazing film. All of his films have this incredible warmth to them. Except and, the Hulk. And they're... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I've never actually seen The Hulk, so... Well, he, it's, it's not his favourite of his films. Fair enough. <laughs> but um, what I, the, there are so many things to love about Crouching Tiger. Uh, let's just, let's enumerate them very, very quickly. Uh, cinematography is amazing. The costume designer was also the, the production designer, which is an incredible feat of craftsmanship. The fight choreography, Wu Ping Wan, I mean, you know, that's just goes without saying. Extraordinary cinema of spectacle uh, and yet he manages to fuse that with cinema of ideas you know we get the thrill of that kind of hong kong wuja cinema and we get this extraordinary rich complex story about duty and personal freedom and because james Seamus and i forget the name of the uh, the chinese filmmaker forgive me um who wrote wheeling wang is it who wrote the uh, screenplay with james Seamus. Uh, and Ang Lee, there's such tenderness and such um, intelligence behind the storytelling that 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 conflict between duty and personal freedom never feels easy and it never feels like a fait accompli. It always feels complex and difficult. Uh, and I absolutely love that. And as an Irish person, uh, the film really resonated with me because the film is about your duty to your family. Um, and coming from a really clannish community, you know, where we're very tribal. And um, that notion right. of that drive of your duty to your family resonates very powerfully. Um, and, and I felt that he articulated that incredibly clearly. And he balanced it really, really well with the kind of more traditional trope of cinema, which is personal freedom, get away from your parents, you should just break free and go and live on the other side, which is, you know, that's a, that's a trope that we see in this kind of cinema a lot in the West um, and, and to balance those things and make them both feel of equal weight, even as they're in conflict with one, with one another, felt really, really powerful to me. That's something that I mm. really wanted to inflect, uh, that I wanted to do with Sea Fever because Sea Fever is, if, the weight, if there's a weighting in the storytelling, it's about balancing the self and the other and our right. duty to ourselves and our duty to the community. Um, and that's also kind of extrapolated into this notion of when is it right to embrace the scientific method and look at the world coolly and uh, and see it as it really is? And when is it right to embrace a more uh, magical, hopeful, optimistic uh, form of magical thinking that allows you to believe in myth and be nourished by, um, by optimism? Mm. Uh, and to try and give those things equal weight and make them feel as important as the other. Uh, while acknowledging that sometimes one must come to the fore uh, uh, at the expense of the other. So I thought, uh, I think Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is, is an amazing film in that it manages to do that. And it's a, it's truly a fusion film in that, I, I, I mean, I am not an Asian person, so, you know, I, I could be totally knocked down on this. But for me, as somebody looking at, uh, at that film from outside of an Asian perspective, I felt that I was being invited to, to enjoy this film in the shoes of somebody who is not a white boy. And that was pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and I was being invited to understand and connect with a culture through resonances that felt familiar to me uh, 
in terms of duty and family and those things at the same time as being pulled toward that kind of Western ideal of um, individuation and uh, and the struggle for personal freedom. So I think it's an extraordinary film uh, for those reasons. And then, you know, it's also, it's it's um, harnessing the, the tropes and idioms of the genre in ways that I think, you know, if you're not a big Wuja fan, you might not necessarily uh, be aware of, and it doesn't really matter if you're not aware of them, but if you are, it's kind of funny that he does, you know, the fight in the bar and the fight in the bamboo forest that all appear in other films. And he's not, he's not lampooning them and he's not... Um, uh, making fun of them and he's not uh, diminishing them, but he's kind of paying homage to them. And there's something really beautiful about that as well, I think. Well, and in a way that invites an audience that's not raised on those movies in, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it. Uh, I've talked about this in the show in a theater and, you know, I'd seen a lot of those. So it was not a new genre to me. And and um, I, I, I very much liked it. I've gone back and, and loved it. There, were, I think there was a certain sense of like, oh, it's it's just one of these kind of things I was having. But I remember looking behind me at one point, and there was this you know, 12, 13-year-old Asian girl sitting behind me. And her just eyes were just bugging out of her head. And you're like, oh, my God, she's never gotten to see this. She's never gotten to see, you know, there's Michelle Yeoh representing her on screen and kicking ass and taking names. And yeah, you know, I, I get to, I can see that every day of the week. Yeah, and, the, and, yeah. And, and Michelle. Yeah, I mean the cast are just so amazing, aren't they? Like yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lee Bai is that the Chow Yun Fat is just such an extraordinary actor, and there's yeah. so much going on every time you cut to him. It's just these layers of emotion beaming through the screen at you. Yeah. And Michelle Yo, now she's a really good fighter herself, is she not? She's, yeah. Yeah. she's trained. She's a trained fighter, so she's um, and you feel it all for her. Um, the the fight sequences where she's driving the action are the best in the movie. I think okay. she's yeah, really something. She's such an athlete, and the precision and the choreography of those is just delicious. Um, yeah, because she had more of a background in that than, than Chow did. Then, I think so, or yeah. than than Zhi Zhang yeah. did. Um, but but the the fulcrum of the film being you know this kind of relationship between Michelle Yeoh and Zhi Zhang and that notion of personal freedom and, and duty and how that plays out between the two of them. It's just so beautifully articulated, and uh, and you know there. Are, I know Wong Kar Wai made a, a Wu Zhao film uh, a couple of years before, which was terrific, um, and I think he was reaching towards this kind of idea of we can make a version of the cinema of spectacle that's also the cinema of ideas, and we can you know reach something that is an amalgam of both of those things. And I feel like where he was going is is where Crouching Tiger kind of landed uh, in this yeah. wonderful sort of interstitial moment. Now, I do know that there are uh, proper Wuja um, uh, scholars and, and people who are more educated in the genre than I am who go, sure, the fight sequence isn't in Crash and Tiger, Hidden Dragon. They're nothing. They're not half as good as it, you know. Um, of course not. Of course not. Uh, the real masters of the genre. <laughs> That's, but, um, that's right. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think it's that. It's, they have to say that, though, right? You always have to say that. It's that, to... um, it's that harnessing of those genre idioms uh, such that they are yeah. still recognizable and still offer the pleasures that you get at the cinema spectacle. Harnessing those to um, really three dimensional uh, characterizations where there's, um, there's, you know, genuinely something profound and interesting going on at the level of the thematic and at the level of the character transformation. That I think it's it's really hard to do, and he did it so brilliantly, so brilliantly. Yeah. And just a side note, as we're sitting here in a world that's clearly being made worse by terrible, terrible people, um, uh, I, I, I've heard this a couple times now. Apparently, Chow Yun Fat is 
literally the nicest human being who ever lived. So we've got he, Ang Lee and we've got Chow Yun-Fat, both of whom are Chow, just Chow, fabulous Chow apparently lovely. gives... He gives all of his money to charity. He lives wow. in like a one bedroom apartment and he buys all of his clothes at, at like Goodwill shops. <laughs> and he's this giant he movie really star. Why. He is that man. He's all about yeah. dating. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just cheerful and happy and has no wants and goes off and. Oh, God. He's got the perfect life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, tell me if this is true. I've, I've heard that um, the film is obviously in Mandarin and I've heard that not all of the actors were Mandarin speakers. And, and oh, that some of them learned the language phonetically. And obviously, as not a Mandarin speaker myself, I don't know. But I'm told that for people who, who are native speakers, the film is hilarious. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But I, and I was told that by a cinema scholar. I, I so don't know. Such a provincial view. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I'll, you know, next time I watch it, I'll listen. I... Uh... Yes, with your with your Mandarin chops that you have there. Say that's Cantonese. <laughs> <laughs> but this that figure Jen Yu is such a great figure as well, and and the film is quite confusing. I think first of all, there's the opening twenty minutes. There's no Wu Jia fighting, so that when it finally takes off, it's really thrilling. You're really not so you've kind of forgotten that this is what you're supposed to be expecting, and it's really thrilling right. because it's so magical and strange in the context of you know a much more Western film, which we've been led into in that first act. But that figure of Jen Yu then is really um, just kind of wonderfully original, I think, in that the first time I saw it, I wasn't really sure where she was going to go next. You know, the way mostly with it, with the cinema that we're familiar, we're all so familiar with, sure. the, with the kind of um, the, the vernacular and the grammar of the, of the kind of cinema stories that we see that you go, oh, right, okay, so she's very shy. So by the end of the film, she's going to be singing in a stage in front of 500 people or whatever. You know, you kind of get the idea of where this character is going. And um, and with that figure of Jen Yu, I felt like, actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which way this film is going to jump. And there was something really thrilling about that, um, about not quite knowing. You know, you think it's going to turn into a love story where she goes into uh, the wilderness and, and meets this wonderful young man, um, uh, Chen Chang. And um, then suddenly that's not what she wants at all. And she wants something different. Um, but what she right. wants is is... There's something kind of ineffable about what she wants. And that the, the way that the film ends, I hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody, but it is 20 years old. The way that the film ends where, you know, she she has this kind of apotheosis is so unexpected. And yet it's really satisfying. You know, it's a Pelman yeah. Louise kind of ending where mm. your heart just soars. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful film. It's a beautiful film. And, and you're right, it is so hard to lay down narrative elements or characters in a way that that uh, uh confounds your ability to see where they're going because that the audience is not I, I, you yeah i think i'm thinking of like the what's his name reginald Bell johnson in die hard who has this whole minute-long speech about how he you know he shot a kid and he's had to put his gun away and he's not sure he could ever pull out his gun again and now yeah. and you're and you know it's going, a great speech and he's a great <laughs> and you're like yeah i know i know where this is gonna end <laughs> but how do you but you have to lay that up for it to pay I know, off. I'm flat and pay off, I know, I know. And yeah. somehow we have, yeah, yeah you've got to find more ingenious ways of doing it. God, is hard though, isn't it? But, well, but that's, the, cha that's yeah. the challenge of doing genre, you know, is that the audience expects certain things and they're so familiar with the, with the tropes and the way things go that the, you have to try to, and they want to be confounded. They want yes, to be surprised. I think that's they it, want to be it? misled. Yeah. They want, they, yeah. they, they're with you, you know, yeah. but it's as a, as a creator, it's just so hard not to fall into the standard 
groove of doing things because that's always the way it's been done and it's always worked before. And the, the audience will come out disappointed, even if you do it fairly well. They're like, well, that's, but yeah, I didn't get, I, I didn't get what I, it, it? and that, it is. And that's, I think, I think that's, a, that's the strength of, of, of your film is that uh, oh, it is in a well-worn genre. Uh, we've seen people on boats before. We've we've seen sea creatures. We've seen aliens. We, you know, we 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 know this stuff. So to try to to try to spring it on them in a slightly different way, so they're not quite sure where it's going to go, which Arrival does, uh, is no, is very no. it's very tricky. It's very hard to do. It, it can be tricky. done and it's done, but uh, it's, it's it's a challenge, more of a challenge. It's, 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 when somebody does it well, it ju you just fall in love, don't you? So because, satisfying. I know. Yeah, it's yeah. just so wonderful. Which is no, I love it because if you can, end. if you can look back and go, oh my God, they actually laid this up. They they told me this was coming, and I didn't see it. And I, I, I it's just, yeah, it's always confounding. You know, James Bond always has to use every gadget that Q gives him. You just you know it's coming. It's just there's no way to you don't give him a laser pen if he's not going to use it. Yeah, yeah. If he doesn't use it at all, that would be <laughs> annoying. But he's got to use it in some way that you don't anticipate he's going to use it. And right, that's right. That's, he's got to use it thing. not the way Q told him to do it. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So exactly. it is, and it, you're right that it is something that I was thinking very hard about in Sea Fever. You know, you want to you want to quote, the, in, in the same way that the films that I'm talking about tonight, you know, you want to quote those idioms and then you want to subvert them. You want to reframe them right. and subvert them and go, you think you know what this is, but you don't. Right. Or do you right. see that we always expect this to go one way? And I really want to do that with the people of color in the film as well, because, um, there's a, there's a brilliant book by a guy called Abervine about um, war cinema saying, you know, war cinema is essentially uh, a cinema usually of about between five and seven people. And uh, and he goes through the archetypal tropes. You know, there'll be the young ingenue who, um, who, will, get, who will either get killed or turn into uh, the, the hardened uh, dutiful soldier by the end. There'll be the tough but fair commander. Uh, there'll be the man of color who's going to get killed by the second reel. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and all of these things that we're all very familiar with, uh, and once you have them enumerated, yeah. you go, oh, I know what that is, I know what that is, and I've seen that in three films, and I can name the characters in those films. And so, you know, on a, because essentially this is this is within the same kind of broader um, narrative structural framework, you know, where you have a troop of people and you want to get to know all of them, um, yeah. that uh, that I really want to run with that idea of, you know, the expectant father and the man of colour and, and the final girl and all of those tropes that we're all really familiar with and try and, you know, look like you're setting them in play and then subvert them and do something different with them. It is hard. Yeah. Well, but, then, yeah. but that does allow you a certain uh, ability to use those ex expectations. You know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I always think of um, the Hurt Locker, you know, the opening scene in the Hurt Locker with um, Guy Pearce. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's such a brilliant use of casting to do that, yep. to run mm -hmm. with yeah. the audience. Um, and well, she does it. Lee and Psycho. You know. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and she does it again with Ray well, Fiennes in the same film. Or the reverse. I mean, one of the things you know, I don't. I saw Alien opening day. I'm so glad I had that experience. And and uh, uh, the exact opposite is Sigourney Weaver, who's the one person in the film you'd never seen before. So for sure, and she's a pretty young girl. So she's most likely to die in real too. Yeah. First, second, okay, third, fourth. Fifth, and you get to the end of the movie, it's like, what? Sorry, I'm spoiling Alien. Um, <laughs> Which is older than twenty years, <laughs> yeah. But it's it's so fascinating because everybody who's seen it from subsequent generations is going in to see that Sigourney Weaver film, so they're not at all. They don't get that surprise. Yeah, casting yeah. As, a, as a narrative element, and I think we yeah. we for, well, you know, I think it's something that that is underused, and I know why it's underused because you know why would you do that if you can if you can um, 
have the benefit sure, get of a, a movie very star. famous yeah. person. Yeah. But um, but it's such a brilliant uh, narrative trick because it is so unexpected, so unexpected in, in The Hurt Locker. And I love the fact that she does it twice. The first time I saw that film, you know, they're, they're out in the desert and uh, uh, you're aware that these three character actors are really vulnerable and any of them might die now because I didn't really know any of them. They weren't, I know Jeremy Renner is going right. to be a huge star, but at the time I, I only knew yeah, him as a character actor. Really- I thought, well, he could die. So I was really very, very frightened for them in the desert. And suddenly Ray F- Fiennes comes over the horizon and I could feel myself going, oh, thank God, it's Ray Fiennes. Thank God, they'll be all right now. <laughs> Ray Fiennes is here. It totally worked for me as a piece of casting. Yeah. The baggage that he brings with him and with his star power, I, I really felt the narrative was drawing me in a certain direction. And then when yeah. what happens to him happens to him. Uh, right. it, it was really destabilizing. And it was exactly the same as the beginning of the film when, uh, when Guy Pearce stars. I felt really at sea. It was it was an incredible yeah. uh, it was an incredible device to deliver. Uh, yeah, no, I, I love I love when it works. I love when it works. It made me nuts in um, uh, a recent film. We try not to back up, and you know the, the film did all right without my uh, diehard affection. Nineteen Seventeen, oh, when yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch shows up in the last five minutes, all that served to do was remind me that I'm watching a movie because it didn't. Oh, that's interesting. Nothing played up. There was no, there was no payoff to it. There was none of that, yeah. you know. Here comes the movie star, always oh, dead. It was just this sort of, yeah, odd, yeah. yeah. But, um, but that's yeah, interesting. No, I, I yeah, love, it's I love a when... point. I suppose yeah. that, what's the advantage of Benedict Cumberbatch there? I suppose the advantage is it's the same thing that uh, that um, Sam Mendes does with um, Colin Firth, isn't it? It's these guys bring gravitas. They br- that you expect right. them to be giving. Well, they're also, they're also they're good actors. I mean, you know, it's it's like you can't fault the the, the casting of of good 100%. actors. One hundred percent. Yeah, no, they absolutely. Have, they have that charisma. Say, yeah, they take over the room, yeah. right? When they and it doesn't it certainly doesn't hurt to say that you know in my cast of nobodies there are actually a couple of names people recognize. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but it does work narratively as well. I think you know it does. It, th- there is a sense that these are the aristocrats; these are the uh, the people giving orders. You know, this, this sure. Um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yes. They are the movie stars of the war. Yeah, yeah, and they fill the room. They're charismatic guys. They fill the room uh, when they're on screen. You know, uh, your right. eye goes to them because they're interesting. Because they're great actors. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Um, right. Yes. Shall we move so on? Do... Yes. <laughs> Seeing as we have another oh, film to do, um, which we is do, Bigelow's uh, follow-up to The Hurt Locker, which is Zero, Zero Dark Thirty. Um, and I thought about using The Hurt Locker for the reasons that we've just talked about. It, and then I thought, actually, Zero Dark Thirty is almost a weirder film. Um, and yeah. and the thing, there are things in Zero Dark Thirty that I think are worth talking about um, that aren't altogether comfortable. Um, so first of all, you know, it's it's an amazing piece of work. And she is, I think, the greatest stylist alive. She's such an incredible formalist as a director. I really love mm. her cinematography and her mise-en-scene and her, uh, you know, the way that she uses the actors in the camera. I think, yeah, I think she's an amazing formalist. Um, and she, God, does that woman know how to deliver tension and, and yeah. sustained tension over a narrative. Uh, and again, there's a kind of withholding in the performances in, in both The Heart Locker and Zero Dark Thirty um, that that delivers this kind of low-level buzz of uncanny and unease all the way through. It's They're both remarkable achievements in that respect and, and, and very like a rival, actually, weirdly, 
in terms of the formalism of the cinema making um, that I think is uh, it's just it's really powerful. Um, Jessica Chastain, amazing actor, brilliant part. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that I, that I think is interesting about this story is it's a Western. And um, it's, you know, it's it's absolutely 100% drawing on the iconography and the mythology of the Western with Jessica Chastain playing the part that we normally associate with Clint Eastwood, where, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a story about revenge. It's a story about going on a revenge quest. Um, yeah. And and she goes on that, you know, you could argue it's it's got a quality of the searchers about it in that there's something really queasy and uneasy about the ethics of the quest that she's going on. And we're not 100% with her uh, in the ethics of what she's doing. Um, but she's this, you know, damaged, single-minded, driven figure who exacts the revenge that she wants to revenge, just like Clint Eastwood uh, or right. like John Wayne or, uh, you know, any number of, uh, of those kind of lonesome hero gunmen, Shane maybe. Um, right. and, uh, and yet at the end, we have that kind of beat of Unforgiven where it's been really unsatisfying. Um, and that she acknowledges in that final beat that she has been irreparably corrupted by this quest and that there is nothing for her now, that her, she's collapsed her whole world around herself. Um, so using the tropes of the Western in that way strikes me as a really brilliantly original way of coming at shot. Mm. Um, sure. And I, I did love the film for that reason. Uh, and, you know, again, it's it, it, like a lot of the other films that I'm talking about. It's a film where you've got a female protagonist where that's not what the story is about. Um, and the story is not about, uh, you know, any obstacles pushing her away by virtue of her sex and nobody ever treats her any differently by virtue of her sex. Right. She's just herself. She's just a fully fledged, totally three-dimensional human figure uh, moving through the landscape um, with these very specific strengths and character weaknesses uh, that that are driving the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that, that I can see the connection. Uh uh, to your film for sure. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting movie. Uh, um, take it on its own. I, I think it's amazing. I, I was there's sort of weird issues with, with its intent overall, the sort yes. of in the larger world. And, yes. You know, let's, um, let's yeah. pick that a little bit, shall we? I think. Okay, sure. Yeah. I, I'm happy to. So I, I think, you know, torture is the issue here. Um, there are depictions of torture in that film. And the film doesn't shy away from the fact that Jessica Chastain's character is complicit, explicitly complicit, yeah. and has no problem with the torture. Uh, and yeah. It's made explicit in that opening scene where she's offered the chance to leave the room and she says no. Uh, and right. as the story advances, she actively participates in torture. Uh, and the story takes the position. No, I shouldn't say that. The story is equivocal. Uh, in its relation to torture. And what I learned from that film, I think, is depiction is not the same as critique. And that as storytellers, we have a moral obligation, I think, in terms of how and why we tell the stories we tell. So I can't, I mean, I've read the interviews with her and, and, and with Mark Bowl, and I know that their intention was to be as authentic and truthful as possible. And I get that and I admire that and I respect it. Um, and yet at the same time, it's a Western. Do you know, right. like it, 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 cinema is cinema and fiction is fiction. And poetic yeah. truth always has to supersede actual truth because it's fiction. 
It's Tom Wolfe, isn't it? It's the poetic truth that we, the deeper truth that we come to the cinema for. So we do have a duty and a responsibility to articulate that. And I think, you know, depiction is not the same as critique. And you see- No, but it, no, it, it, is, it is pretty much the Dick Cheney approach to um, um, that subject. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's difficult to watch the movie and not feel that vibe behind it. Approval. Yeah. Well, because the problem, the problem is they, they, and again, it's always the tricky thing because, you know, we're, I don't know, I am, you guys are sophisticated city ass time. I'm, I, I, I try, uh, but you know, we, we go to movies that based on a true story, we know what we're getting into. We know it's all bullshit to some extent, Yeah, exactly. but it was, it was presenting this true story that everyone sort of knew. And I think the big issue was the fact that they showed regardless of the moral compass they were applying to the torture, they were showing that it actually worked in getting the information. I, I, would, I would argue that, that actually the film is a little bit more equivocal than that. I think, uh, I know that was one of the critiques that was leveled at it, that it's showing that that it works. Yeah. I'm not sure that's actually true. If you look at the at the dynamics of the storytelling, I'm not sure that's true. Um, I they, think, they put it in grayer? I, I think it's equivocal. And I'm not saying that it's good that it's equivocal. I think it is equivocal. Um, and I think the story, the the, the break into the third act is um, is uh, or maybe it's a little bit later. Is it that um, that idea that actually the the information that Jessica Chastain's character was seeking was actually available to the CIA all along, and that in fact it was an error of researchers not finding the information that had already been given to them by a third party country sympathetic mm -hmm. after 9-11, 9-11, that had not properly been processed. So that is a point that is made in the narrative, that the information she's seeking, she gets in a different way. And the film right. does, um, it does quote Barack Obama going, we don't torture. Um, but at the same time, it is, it is very unequivocal that Jessica Chastain's character has been complicit in these acts. So, you know, I do think it sits in that kind of searcher's territory where it's not actually clear whether the filmmaker is a, you know, in the searchers, it's not actually clear whether John Ford is behaving in a really racist way in the way that he's telling the story, or whether he's trying to tell an equivocal story about a man who's lost his way morally. There's, you exactly, know, there's yeah. something queasy about that. And I think the same thing is true of Zero Dark Thirty, because it's a Western. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's, it's a well-made well case. I'm, uh, <laughs> is, yes. You argue the point effectively. Um, <laughs> But I do think, you know, similarly to, to other Westerns, you know, it does definitely uh, contain within its DNA this notion of manifest destiny, which is something that's yeah. quite an uneasy making idea. Well, perhaps for you, for, for you Europeans. Yes, I was going to say, not for us. <laughs> but we grow up with it. Yeah, all your toys are ours. It's all ours for the taking. <laughs> I think the word I'm looking for is Anyway, and <laughs> <laughs> uh. um, but yeah, I mean, I do, I do think it's a really interesting film uh, for all of those reasons, and and I do think that um, for me, uh, that was a real object lesson uh, in in you know saying, okay, yes, I, I understand the character is equivocal, but I do think that uh, that we as filmmakers probably have a moral duty uh, in terms of how we inflect the kinds of stories that we tell. Um, because, as you guys know much more than I do, the you know cinema makes culture. We make culture. The number of people that I have spoken to in my life who have, who who quote films back to me as if they are lines from a biblical text, or who <laughs> say 
you know, I had this idea to be this kind of person because I saw it in the movies. You know, we these are we 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 form culture from the weave and weft of our, our artistic practices. And we have a responsibility and a duty to take that seriously and to choose carefully the stories that we tell and how to tell them. It's not that that there are stories that are untellable. I think every story is tellable. But I think we also have a moral duty in terms of how we inflect um, the 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 enculturation of the work that we do. Yeah, yeah, could not agree more. Um, wow. Well, yes, sir. Thank you so much. That was that was a fascinating uh, exploration of those films, and um, I really really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Well, what a great pleasure to talk with two legends of the screen. It's and bringing some and, and bringing bringing some some light into our shut in lives. Yes. <laughs> Au contraire. Listen, I'm the one who's living in the far northern hemisphere. You and you were the guys who were hanging out under the palm trees. Yeah, well, we're, we're still shut in nonetheless. Not this week, <laughs> but soon. But anyway, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Uh, really appreciate it. Folks, check out Sea Fever. It's available now on every every platform except your local theater, unfortunately. But, um, but when the revival houses come back, you can go see it on a widescreen. <laughs> do, exactly. do. Turn up your TVs loud. 5.1 surround sound. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.